0: Okay, everyone. Um, Welcome. My name is Jonathan Bell. I'm the head of department at the Institute of the Americas at UCL. It's a huge pleasure and privilege to welcome you to our annual Eleanor Roosevelt Lecture here at the Institute. The lecture has been a regular feature of our department activity since the department was created at UCL in 2012. Um, And it highlights the Institute's research and teaching interests, which might be said to be exemplified by the life of the First Lady of the United States between 1933 and 1945. And then Roosevelt, our interests in human rights, in social policy, in gender politics, and in international politics, including Eleanor Roosevelt's pivotal role in the early years of the United Nations. We've welcomed scholars who study these issues And we've also strayed into welcoming those in the wider public realm with interest in human rights issues, having had the current leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, as the Roosevelt Lecturer in 2017. Today, we're privileged to have with us Amy Offner, Associate Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. Her work has particular resonance for a department like the Institute of the Americas that is dedicated to a transhemispheric understanding of key issues in social science and humanities. Um, she is interested in global perspective on US history with a special interest in the relationship between the United States and Latin America and political regimes in Latin America. She's the author of Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, the Rise and Fall of Welfare and Developmental States in the Americas, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. The book is the winner of the Economic History Society's first monograph prize, the Murdo J. McLeod Prize from the Latin American and Caribbean section of the Southern Historical Association and the Alice Hammondsman Award from the Society for the Advancement of Socioeconomics. She joins us today to take us through some of the arguments, research, questions, issues that have come out of that project. And I'm really delighted to be able to welcome Amy to our community. So um, I'm really pleased to hand over to you, and we will look forward to your lecture and to questions afterwards. So thank you,
1: Thank you very much for that generous introduction. Thank you for the invitation to be here. It's such an honor. I wish we could meet in person, but I, Uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation even by Zoom. Um, I should say that I identify very strongly with the definition of the field that the Institute takes, the idea of the Americas as a unit to study. Um, That is very much the sense in which my uh, research proceeds. So thank you, Jonathan, for the introduction. Thank you to Josh also for the invitation and for organizing this and to Oscar. Um, I'm gonna try to share my screen and see if that works. Okay, and um, let's see if I can set up my own screen so that I can see things. Okay, great. So I'm gonna be talking today about um, my book, Sorting Out the Mixed Economy. This is a book that travels through river valleys, through housing complexes, job training centers, economic planning offices, and college classrooms in order to understand how governments in the capitalist economies of Colombia and the United States first took on widening functions during the decades after 1945, and then how their functions were dismantled, reassigned, and redefined after the 1970s. The book ultimately makes two central points. First it reveals the influence of Latin American developmentalism on the formation of the U.S. welfare state and on the intellectual and political life of the North Atlantic more generally. In that sense, it takes a central insight of post-colonial studies, the idea that imperialism shapes metropoles and it applies that insight to the history of the United States. Second, the book argues that a number of practices that we tend to regard today as quintessentially neoliberal inventions actually had earlier lives as developmentalist phenomena. So it finds things that we tend not to remember about mid-century statecraft, things like austere systems of social welfare provision, evolving methods of state decentralization, and novel forms of for-profit and private delegation of state functions. The book concludes that capitalism in the late 20th century wasn't built in simple reaction against Keynesianism and developmentalism. Instead, it was a parasitic formation that appropriated and redeployed key elements of the very order that it destroyed. This argument was my attempt to resolve what I think had become confounding puzzles within the burgeoning literature on the origins of neoliberalism. Most writing on that subject has depicted the 1970s and 1980s as a moment of cataclysmic rupture, a time when spectacularly marginal ideas and practices just obliterated everything that had come before. That literature has suggested moreover that those ideas originated in the North Atlantic and mainly among intellectual and political communities on the right. I think that those accounts have a lot of truth in them. They've taught us a lot, but for all that they have taught us, they leave us with some perplexing problems. Many purportedly novel practices of the late 20th century, including the techniques of state restructuring and social welfare provision that my book analyzes, many of these practices actually had long tangled roots that extended into welfare and developmental states themselves. Some of the leading policymakers within the World Bank and the IMF were actually Latin Americans who believed that they were carrying forward the lessons of mid-century statecraft. Radical liberalization programs rarely relied on coups or massive purges, but instead drew strength from existing institutions and officials who had very long careers inside the state. So my book presents a different understanding of the way that political economic orders give way, an understanding that recognizes the mid-century third world as a vital source of ideas, and one that accounts for continuities between successive forms of capitalism. The book is based on research in over 30 archives and repositories in the United States and Colombia, as well as oral history interviews in both countries. It's a book that ranges pretty widely across different domains of life, and it moves up and down scales from local land conflicts up to the functioning of international financial institutions. What I wanna do today is give you just sort of a taste of this research by looking at two practices that built Colombia's developmental state then were adapted in the North Atlantic and eventually became redeployed to take apart mid-century states in both regions. So we'll start with state decentralization. I think it is a very curious fact that both the making and the unmaking of welfare and developmental states relied on forms of state decentralization that their champions hailed as historically unprecedented. Decentralization was, in fact, an enduring and characteristic form of government in the Americas by the time of the Great Depression. And I argue that it was reimagined and redeployed twice during the subsequent years, first as a developmentalist prescription to expand the responsibilities of weak states, and then later as an instrument to break down existing state functions. So, take one example the birth of Colombia's first regional development corporation, which was called the Cauca Valley Corporation or the CBC. So, in this picture, we see some of the founders and early contractors of the CBC. The CBC was founded in 1954 as a river valley development agency. It was located in one of the richest agricultural regions of all of Latin America, Colombia's Cauca Valley in southwestern Colombia and it was spearheaded by local capitalists. Um, The the founders of the CBC were the leaders of Andi, which was Colombia's most powerful business association, roughly the equivalent to the National Association of Manufacturers in the United States. These were cosmopolitan capitalists and they enlisted supporters from the World Bank, the US government, the Colombian government, and they also pulled in a host of international advisors, including David Lilienthal, a noted new dealer, who had been the chairman of the Tennessee Valley Authority in the United States. So together, the CBC and its backers mobilized stories about the Tennessee Valley Authority, this iconic New Deal agency, in order to impress their own lessons on the Colombian government. They argued that the TVA had demonstrated the value of decentralized public administration, and they forced the Colombian government to devolve an enormous range of powers to the CBC. The CVC's conception of decentralization was time-bound. It was not the same as the prescriptions for decentralization that emerged in the 1980s and the 1990s. In its moment, in the 1950s, it had two aspects. First, establishing the CVC required devolving national power to a regional body and indeed inventing the natural region of the river valley as a new jurisdiction in Colombian governance. Second, creating the CBC blurred the line between public and private authority as the state vested powers in private businessmen and remade public enterprise in the image of the for-profit private sector corporation. I traced the CBC's history from the 1950s to the 1990s, showing first how its conception of decentralization became central to statecraft during the National Front, which was the anti-communist coalition government that ruled Colombia from 1958 to 1974. During these years, the CBC became a model for other regional development corporations all throughout Colombia, these important public enterprises, um, and the CBC just campaigned tirelessly for its version of state decentralization. This is an image from a CVC campaign that began in the 1960s to defend the powers of the country's regional development corporations. It exposes the purported truth of centralism, which is a Bogotano businessman representing the capital city milking the agriculturally rich Cauca Valley. The capitalists who led the CBC were regional boosters who wanted to wield state power in order to strengthen their hand in local social conflicts. And indeed in the book, I show how they used state power to dispossess thousands of campesinos during the era of land reform in the 1960s. So they wanted to wield state power, but they didn't want to answer to Bogota. Um, And uh, they depicted the national state and the capital city itself as a usurping, exploitative outside force. As the CBC championed its version of decentralization during these decades, it also became a training ground for a new generation of professional economists whose careers extended from the heyday of developmentalism into its twilight. Economics was invented as an independent discipline in Latin America after the Great Depression. And my book explores the struggle of a nascent profession to establish the nature of economic knowledge, to distinguish economics from management, and to carve out a jurisdiction for economists within the developmental state. I argue that the developmental state itself profoundly shaped the economic ideas of Colombia's first generation of professional economists. It inculcated in them an enduring interest in state restructuring that they carried into the 1980s and 1990s. So I follow the careers of figures like Colombian economist Eduardo Wiezner who we see here on the screen, um, let's see if I can, there we go. We see uh, Eduardo Wiesner here as he's generally known outside Colombia. Wiesner became the head of the Western Hemisphere uh, Department of the International Monetary Fund in the 1980s, which means that he participated in negotiating structural adjustment agreements all throughout Latin America. A decade later, in the 1990s, he became a consultant on state decentralization at the World Bank, and he argued then, in the 1990s, that decentralization was an essential adjunct to structural adjustment. I show how his writing on decentralization in those decades wasn't sui generis. It wasn't reactive against the mid-century state in any simple way. Wiesnick had never been a dissident outsider to mid-century state building. He was a product of it. His interest in decentralization actually dated to the 1960s when he was a young man in Bogota and an admiring analyst of Colombia's decentralized agencies like the CBC. Over the course of decades, Weizner turned the idea of decentralization over in his mind. He refashioned it and redeployed it to meet new crises until finally in the 1980s, he proposed to create a completely restructured decentralized state one that actually took power away from the mid-century agencies that had once symbolized decentralization in Colombia and handed power and responsibility instead to departments and municipios, which are roughly the equivalent of US states, counties and county seats. So the result was a completely different conception of decentralization, one that we tend to remember as a replacement for an old centralized system. Our memory of decentralization as a practice associated with the demise of the mid-century state and not with its construction, owes to the self-understanding of figures like Wiesner, who in the 1980s and 1990s, distinguished their new prescriptions from older ones by constructing a retrospective understanding of the mid-century state as a centralized behemoth. In doing so, they obscured the origins of their own ideas and they erased the long and tangled lineage of the practice that they promoted. Throughout my book, I find people doing exactly what Wiesnet did, drawing out what they considered the true lessons of development projects and in the process producing quite unexpected prescriptions. The foil to Wiesnet in the book is David Lilienthal who drew his own lesson from the history of the CBC. So here we see David Lilienthal. If Eduardo Wiesnet adapted the impulse toward regionalism that the CVC's charter contained in 1954, then Lilienthal drew out the impulse toward privatization. Lilienthal was born in 1899, and of course, he became one of the most notable faces of the New Deal during the 1930s and 1940s. He chaired the Tennessee Valley Authority. He went on to direct the Atomic Energy Commission. This image of him on the screen would, I think, surprise some US historians who know him as a symbol of public enterprise and public regulation. But as I show, in the 1950s, David Lilienthal embarked on a second public career as a private businessman, and he actually wrote a book defending the sprawling modern corporation called Big Business, and this image on the screen is the cover of a condensed, abridged version of that book that General Motors published and distributed to its own employees in order to counteract labor and the left. During the 1950s, Lillian Ball remade himself as an international development consultant peddling lessons from the TVA, and he found his first contract in Colombia working for the CDC. He quickly became entangled in a host of business development projects that surrounded the CBC. Perhaps the most consequential of those was the creation of the first MBA program in Colombia, which was founded at the Universidad del Valle, which was the local public university in the city of Cali. And the book has a lot to say about the rivalrous entanglement of economics and management as disciplines and professions as they were being uh, formed together uh, in this moment. I'd be happy to talk about that more in Q&A, but for now suffice it to say that the CBC illuminates what I see as a systemic tension at the heart of the developmental state. Here was a public development agency directed by the leaders of a private business association. Here was a state enterprise vested with national powers for the express purpose of underwriting the growth of private enterprise. The CDC equated the interests of a portion of the Calca Valley's capitalist class with the general interest or the public interest. That elision was characteristic of mid-century developmentalism in capitalist economies. During the 1960s, we see that elision manifested also within the local public university, which of course trained economists to become government planners, and which simultaneously touted the training of industrial managers as one of the university's chief contributions to the community and to the public in those terms. The growth of the public university actually created financial mechanisms that enriched local local and multinational corporations and the leaders of the management program at the university took on leadership roles within the university, promising to rationalize public higher education by applying techniques of industrial management to it. Linthal put his name and some of his own money behind the university's management program, and so did a host of US business schools, US business associations, the Ford Foundation, and organizations of US foreign investors in Latin America. The management program at the Universidad del Valle quickly became the anchor for a network of institutions that linked the Cauca Valley to U.S. business groups and U.S. foreign aid programs. So for instance, in 1963 the Peace Corps began sending young business school graduates to teach in the management program and work as management consultants for the CDC and for local business organizations. The next year, David Rockefeller of Chase Manhattan Bank led a group of U.S. business executives in founding what was called the International Executive Service Corps, sometimes known as the Paunch Corps. This was a peace corps for retired corporate executives who became volunteer management consultants in the third world, supported by U.S. development aid. The International Executive Service Corps was funded primarily by the U.S. Agency for International Development, and its founders hailed it as a model public-private initiative because a board of U.S. businessmen directed it and channeled USAID's money directly to Latin American business enterprises rather than Latin American government agencies. These U.S. businessmen valued the symbolism of private capital controlling the disbursement of public revenues, private capital serving public functions and private capital mediating between states and societies. They depicted businessmen as statesmen. And this project formed part of a much wider effort that I analyze among U.S. foreign investors in Latin America to capitalize on foreign aid by funneling it through and to the private sector. Now, of course, this was never an uncontested project. In fact, uh, the Universidad de Dubai produced a ferociously radical student movement during the late 1960s and 1970s that destroyed the management and economics programs founded during the 1950s and generated rival forms of knowledge by the 1970s. This student movement produced some very notable Colombian intellectuals, including the anthropologist Arturo Escobar, whose 1995 book, Encountering Development, is today a classic. It's set out to bury the entire project of developmentalism and it's still read today as a kind of foundational book in post-colonial interpretations of development. But if we think back to the formative years of the Universidad de la Valle's management program, what's interesting to me is that U.S. businessmen were meeting in Latin America, summoned there by Colombian capitalists and together they were insinuating themselves into the region's development programs during the early 1960s, that is to say during the era of the Kennedy administration. By the time the war on poverty began in 1964, many US businessmen who were veterans of development programs believed that grand questions about the role of private capital in public life had already been resolved. And they saw the Johnson administration's expansion of social welfare spending at home as an opportunity to ply their tools all across the US state. So they turned homeward, promising to repatriate what they saw as the lessons of development. And Lilienthal here is an exemplary case. During the 1960s, he returned to the US public eye Today, in you know, 1964, he's speaking no longer as Mr. TBA, but rather as a businessman working in an incredibly auspicious field, economic development. And Lilienthal argued that the lesson of his work overseas was that states could best fulfill their functions by delegating them to private capital. He pointed to the businessmen of the Calca Valley, and he pointed to his own for-profit consulting firm to argue that a new kind of corporate manager had appeared on the world stage, a moral hero and a patriot fit to resolve the crises of post-war societies. Lillian was one of a generation of U.S. businessmen who shifted their sights from the third world to the first world in the 1960s. Following the enticement of uh, federal budget appropriations and they came home declaring themselves public servants fit to solve the problems that US social movements had forced onto the national agenda. Their mobilization produced an epical change in the US welfare state during the war on poverty, they convinced the Johnson administration to begin operating federal training and education programs by for profit contract with the country's largest industrial corporations. So this is an ad that was placed in the pages of Foreign Affairs, as well as the Financial Analyst Journal, by International Telephone and Telegraph, or ITT. ITT was, of course, um, an infamous um, uh, military contractor and foreign investor deeply involved in shaping U.S. aid in Latin America during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. It was a notorious collaborator with military dictatorships in Latin America. And under the War on Poverty, ITT also became the operator of the first Job Corps camp in the United States, the Kilmer Job Corps Center in New Jersey. This is how job training programs worked in the War on Poverty, not only Job Corps, but a whole range of training programs, including uh, programs run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It was really a notable departure from the New Deal's training programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps, which had been operated by the federal government itself. The firms that argued for this arrangement came from the world of foreign and imperial policy. That is to say, the world of development assistance that I've been looking at, as well as the worlds of military contracting and Indian industrialization policy that the Bureau of Indian Affairs had launched on Indian reservations in the 1950s. The US state had long relied on for-profit contracting to conduct foreign and imperial affairs. And corporations that were experienced in those fields argued in the 1960s that they had a whole portfolio of proven contracting and budgeting procedures that they could carry from the purported edges of the nation into the heart of the US welfare state. The ad here explicitly references that military experience. The text is a little bit small, but what it says is, um, it notes that service is the company's business from helping make war on unemployment to helping defend the free world. The book looks inside training centers in US cities and on Indian reservations, and it shows how the attempt to extract profit from uh, training embedded irresolvable contradictions within the welfare state. To take one example, on the Navajo reservation, Federal job training subsidies went to the Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation, which opened a transistor assembly factory in uh, the city of Shiprock, New Mexico, in 1965. Here we see one of the workers in that factory. Fairchild opened the plant as part of a long-standing hunt for low-wage non-union labor that was leading electronics firms and other labor-intensive industries out of northern cities and across the globe. Certainly among historians, Jefferson Cowie's work has made RCA and the electronics industry preeminent symbols of 20th century capital flight that devastated major manufacturing centers and hobbled the US labor movement. Indian country and the war on poverty form a forgotten part of that story. During the 1950s and 1960s, reservation industrialization policies were explicitly designed to exploit capital mobility and bring footloose capital to Indian reservations. Um, the reservations touted on-the-job training programs as public subsidies to electronics manufacturers that were shifting labor-intensive production across the United States. So here we see a clip from a. Uh, 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 the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, magazine Nations Business, saying, Indian country is a frontier again. This was an article written by a Bureau of Indian Affairs official in 1969. And throughout the 1960s, tribal governments and Washington together brought over 150 new factories to reservations, in part by offering on-the-job training funds that allowed companies to pay workers just half of the minimum wage, while the federal government paid the rest. These on-the-job training programs promised to respond simultaneously to, on the one hand, the demands of employers for cheap labor. On the other hand, the nationalist dreams of tribal officials who are trying to reconstitute life on reservations. And third, the aspirations of native workers themselves who were facing catastrophic levels of poverty and unemployment. It was ultimately impossible to meet all three expectations in equal measure. Fairchild became infamous for running what was supposedly a transitional job training program for nearly 10 years. It maintained a constant flow of trainees who they paid half the minimum wage, shunting the rest of the wage payment onto the federal government. The company essentially used anti-poverty funds from the federal government to put its factory beyond the reach of the Fair Labor Standards Act. After a decade of operation, workers began to organize a union the Bureau of Indian Affairs itself threatened to cut training funds, and the American Indian movement took over the factory to publicize the workers' grievances. As employees organized and job training subsidies seemed about to run out, Fairchild did what electronics manufacturers had always done in those circumstances. It shut the factory and it moved production. Workers who had gone to Shiprock looking for employment ironically had found themselves inside a program that Fairchild was using to undermine the long-term prospect of stable and well-paying employment in the United States. On Indian reservations, the war on poverty's job training programs deliberately exploited a notorious pattern of capital flight and ultimately exposed workers to the devastating consequences of that practice. By 1967, the War on Poverty's job training contractors were capitalizing on their experience in manpower training to present themselves as general authorities on education. They began to win contracts with U.S. public schools during the late 1960s. Initially, they won small contracts with individual local school districts, and in 1970 they received a boost when the Nixon administration signed what were called performance contracts that sent for profit corporations into 18 public school districts across the country. Here we see a 1970 cartoon drawn by actually a public school art teacher in Connecticut named Tom Howd. Um, This was published by his union, the American Federation of Teachers, and it's satirizing performance contracting. We see the fictional Ajax Learning Corporation telling the local board of education, ours is a cash or a crash program in education, sign right here. Performance contracting was a procedure that was taken from the Pentagon. It referred to the practice of outsourcing functions to private industry and paying on the basis of measurable results, in this case, standardized test uh, test scores. The application of performance contracting to education in the late 1960s and 1970s illuminated yet another way in which the welfare state was built by adapting procedures from US foreign policy. What we see here is the origins of for-profit educational contracting in the United States, which is often imagined as a very recent invention, but was in fact born as an instrument to build the welfare state in the 1960s. That is not to say that it was a benign practice or that anyone should regard it with nostalgia. Instead, it reveals the contradictions of the welfare state which was shaped by capital and was in very important ways, a service to capital. So we seem to have come a long way from David Lilienthal, TVA chairman. But what's interesting in all of this is that David Lilienthal's career was woven through this whole story. Lilienthal spent the 1960s, as I I think of him as like an organic intellectual among US businessmen, um, a member of domestic business associations and a prolific writer and speaker who made the case for private capital as a guarantor of the public good. By the 1970s, Lilienthal participated in writing a report at the Committee for Economic Development that celebrated performance contracting in US public schools. From Lilienthal's perspective, these new prescriptions for for for-profit contracting and social services weren't the undoing of the New Deal or of mid-century developmentalism. Instead, he thought that they were the final product of a long crusade against state centralism that he had been engaged in since his own days as a New Dealer. So we've seen here multiple adaptations of the principle of state decentralization. On the one hand, Eduardo Wiesner reimagined the mid-century commitment to regionalism by proposing to redistribute state powers across the national territory and among subnational governments, according to a new pattern in the era of structural adjustment. And on the other hand, Lilienthal turned the idea of state decentralization into new prescriptions for for for-profit privatization of social services. A second phenomenon um, that I explore in the book is the growth of austere build your own home programs. So in the early 1960s, the Colombian capital of Bogota became the site of the largest housing project built in Latin America under the Alliance for Progress, which was this inter-American development initiative launched uh, during the Kennedy administration as a reaction against the Cuban revolution. Ciudad Kennedy, which you can see here in 1965, was initially designed to house 84,000 people. And it initially um, or eventually became an international exemplar of what was called aided self-help housing, which was a characteristic policy of mid-century developmentalism. I should also note that Ciudad Kennedy is on the cover of Ricardo's book. It's a truly a landmark development. Um, Self-help housing assigned governments the tasks of titling land, extending mortgage loans, supplying materials and supervising construction, while recipients themselves went out and built the housing, paid off their mortgage loans and became private property owners. Aided Self-Help was a program that allowed cash-strapped governments to fulfill their mandates by transferring to homeowners the burdens that the governments couldn't bear themselves. In Colombia, it illuminated what I see as the essential hybridity of the developmental state. One of the country's most prominent decentralized agencies created in the 1930s financed the homes, private volunteer labor erected them, and the final product was a homeowning middle class that idealized private property and demanded that the government deliver it. The austerity of the project is not much remembered today, but it was actually quite characteristic of social policy under the Alliance for Progress. The 1960s are often remembered as a time of public munificence, but that was never quite the case in the areas of housing, health, and education. Those areas of social policy were generally circumscribed by first the fiscal strangulation of a government that struggled to raise tax revenues, and also by the terms of US and World Bank loans. Both of those institutions maintained that if you wanted to accelerate growth in the third world, then governments had to concentrate their public investments in industrial production and closely related infrastructure. So for the time being, they said social welfare programs just had to function on a shoestring as a result. The Colombian government and U.S. development agencies preferred programs like self-help housing, a system that deliberately pushed costs and risks onto recipients themselves and demanded that they perform a great deal of unpaid labor. Housing planners who were working within the poorly financed social agencies of the third world were thus generating a model of social welfare provision that was internally suited just as well to an era of fiscal retrenchment. Looking out from Colombia, my book explores the adoption and adaptation of self help housing at the World Bank and in the United States itself, where interestingly, it became a national rural housing policy in the 1960s under the war on poverty. I've emphasized the austerity of the program, um, but in both Colombia and then in the United States, we really see the contradictory promises of a program that was certainly austere. But that also decisively expanded the reach and responsibilities of the welfare state. In the U.S. self-help housing directed federal housing funds to farm workers and Indians living on reservations who before the 1960s had had little to no access to federal home ownership programs. The champions of self-help housing in the United States included Native American nations and Bureau of Indian Affairs officials who were trying to rebuild life on reservations after over a decade of federal efforts to dissolve them. Social Democrats in the United States promoted self-help housing as one piece of a much larger housing program for the United States that centered on tenant controlled public housing, The program's champions also included African Americans who were systematically shut out of the conventional mortgage market by uh, redlining and discriminatory real estate practices. Indeed, the peregrinations of self-help housing expose what I see as the multiple circuits that connected the U.S. and Latin America. We've already seen the circuits that were forged by businessmen whose firms lived and died by public subsidies and who made a place for themselves within every anti-communist state project that would have them. In self-help housing, we see instead the internationalisms of a variety of dissenters on the North American continent, who assigned their own ideals to the owner built home. So this is an image from California's San Joaquin Valley, where the American Friends Service Committee created one of the country's most prominent self-help housing organizations during the early 1960s. It was called self-help enterprises. The American Friends Service Committee was and and is, of course, a Quaker organization committed to pacifism and racial equality. Self-help enterprises became the first self-help housing organization to receive federal funding under the war on poverty, and it quickly became a national model. So here in the San Joaquin Valley and all across the rural United States, self-help housing was building the welfare state, but it was a peculiar strategy for doing so. While it brought federal funds to people and communities that had had really precious little access to them before, the program also retreated from the model of public housing in that it channeled much smaller subsidies to the poor and it sidelined public property ownership as a foundation of shared economic security. From the 1960s to the 1980s, I show how self-help housing programs passed hand-to-hand crossing world regions and crossing decades, becoming ever more austere and diminutive in the process until eventually these programs became symbols of neoliberal capitalism and post-developmentalism. Indeed, the policy acquired fundamentally new meanings over time. By the 1980s, the champions of owner building policies cast their work as an alternative to mid-century statism, their words. And they retrospectively depicted projects like Seudad Kennedy as government housing built by a state that was supposedly an improvident leviathan. So what are we to make of these observations? I want to be very clear that I'm not arguing that the form of capitalism that existed at the end of the 20th century existed in the 1930s or the 1960s. I regard the political economic transformation of the late 20th century as a truly shattering event that dealt a blow to labor movements across the world, brought economic inequality to heights not seen since the 1920s, and inaugurated a very new kind of political economic order. What I think this history does is help us think about how political economic orders give way. For good reason, much writing on the unraveling of welfare and developmentalist projects has depicted roughly a half century of conflict between right and left, and between capital and labor, culminating in a political and intellectual coup from the right during the successive crises of 1973 to 1991. So the oil shocks and stagflation, the debt crisis, the collapse of the Soviet Union. These stories, or the protagonists of these stories are rightfully known to all of us today because they have earned their ignominy, and they include Uh, Neoclassical and Austrian economists, right-wing business and religious networks, military dictators, the Carter, Reagan and Clinton administrations, the World Bank and IMF, and an army of US foundations and think tanks. These stories rely on an image of a world turned upside down through the mobilization of the right and through overwhelming southward projections of power from the North Atlantic into the third world. And those dynamics are clearly important. But this image of how change happens would certainly surprise uh, scholars of other epical transformations, whether the age of revolutions, the era of slave emancipation, the crisis of the great depression or the post-1945 process of decolonization. All of those upheavals remade societies not by inverting their every feature, but by extinguishing a few of their defining elements and breathing new life into others. All of them were multi-sided transnational processes in which influence moved in many directions across lines of imperial, national, and social division. And all of them involved a great deal of narration in the moment and commemoration afterward that produced memories of past orders convenient to the projects that succeeded them. I regard our own world as the product of just such an epical transformation. And I see stories of total rupture and inversion as a form of memory that clarifies conflict in the present day. And in that sense makes contemporary political conflict possible. In place of this image of a world turned upside down or of a marginal set of ideas displacing all that came before I've come to think of the conflicts of the 1970s, 80s and 90s as having sorted mid-century practices from one another, obliterating some of them, redeploying others, and retrospectively redefining them all as elements of two different eras. I call this a process of sorting out the mixed economy. And I wanna take a minute to explain that language. In the United States, Colombia, and much of the first and third worlds. Mid-century policymakers and intellectuals commonly invoked the notion of a mixed economy to describe capitalist orders. It was, I think, an evocative term of its time, and I think it's also a powerful concept for historians to think with. In its moment, the mixed economy was an imagined path between laissez-faire and socialism, or between the stylized ideas of uh, pure private competition and complete state ownership. In that wide expanse in the middle, Grew a remarkable variety of lived practices. States grew by local and private delegation. Tax starved governments supplemented public spending with private volunteer labor, and businessmen made claims to be legitimate stewards of the state. By design and as a point of pride, every project of purported state led development was in equal measure a private initiative. Every national economic plan intersected with a business plan, and policymakers routinely debated just which government agency or for-profit corporation or nonprofit community organization could best carry out a given task under very immediate circumstances. Mixed economies relied on the imagined dichotomy between public and private while systematically conjoining the two. And in doing so, they produced manifold articulations of state and capital and multiple accounts of the relationship between public and private interest. Self-help housing, State decentralization and for-profit educational contracting are illustrative examples of policies that could and did thrive under the banner of a mixed economy and which found new uses after the 1970s under the banner of different ideals that were equally notional and aspirational, the market, the entrepreneur, or the minimal state. Of course, not every feature of mid-century statecraft could survive the crises of the 1970s and 80s. The world at the end of the 20th century was new precisely because it contained only pieces of the past. New demands for fiscal retrenchment and regressive redistribution functioned as a sieve that sorted mid-century practices from each other, imperiling or annihilating some while putting others to new ends. In the United States, federal budget Cuts dealt a blow to conventional public housing while leaving a thin lifeline that sustained self help housing. The Reagan administration vilified cash transfer programs while furnishing fresh opportunities to the war on poverty's educational contractors, some of which live on today as private prison contractors and for profit school assessment firms. In all of these cases, the policies that endured tended to be those that channeled less generous subsidies to poor people themselves and promised less progressive redistribution of income. The institutions that survived tended to be private entrepreneurial ones that the mid-century state had cultivated, whether nonprofit real estate developers that emerged from the world of self-help housing or for-profit corporate subsidiaries that were born in service of manpower training. The epilogue to the book is largely an essay about historical memory. It's my attempt to explain why we don't tend to remember the mid-century origins of these institutions and policies, why I myself did not expect to find this material in the archives and struggled for a long time to think about the political implications of my research. I think we not, tend not to remember the origins of these practices because our understandings of them are actually a very recent vintage. I think they were forged in the 1970s, 80s and 90s in the very process of dismantling welfare and developmental states. The work of political economic restructuring involved a great deal of storytelling about what the mid-century state had been. I find storytellers among economists in the World Bank and the IMF, people like Eduardo wiesner I find storytellers among businessmen whose account of a world turned upside down affirmed their own understanding of themselves as sources of innovation. And I find storytellers Among uh, the right-wing intellectuals who are the protagonists of most books on neoliberalism, men like Milton Friedman or men like Hernando de Soto, the Peruvian economist whose 1986 bestseller The Other Path popularized a right-wing libertarian view of the owner-built home as a novel alternative to mid-century statism. These men aggrandized themselves as intellectual iconoclasts and policy innovators, bringing a new world into being. They were certainly participants in a dramatic transformation, but I don't think that they were quite as innovative or quite as politically and intellectually autonomous as they claimed to be. Very often they were picking up ideas and practices that were left lying around by an earlier generation of state makers. What's interesting to me is that their triumphalist narratives about their own extraordinary accomplishments have come to inform critics of neoliberalism who tell much the same story in a minor key. Much of the scholarship on neoliberalism reinforces the essential claims of celebratory narratives that originated on the right. They present the same periodization of the 20th century and they attribute political economic change to the same set of intellectuals and institutions. The result is a form of historical memory that's neither of the right nor of the left, but rather is a shared way of imagining the recent past that's become foundational to contemporary political conflict. And as historians who are living in this moment, I think that we are soaking in this form of historical memory, which is a tremendous challenge to those of us who are trying to write histories of political economy in the last century. I think that our task is both to analyze economic life and also to analyze the popular tellings of history that shape and sometimes constrain our own inquiry into the past. So that is what this book tries to do. Um, And with that, I'll wrap up and I look forward to to your questions and comments.
0: Great, thank you very much, Amy, for that really stimulating lecture that both speaks to those complex transnational uh, interactions that build private and public intersections around development, welfare state building, but also seeing how the seeds for what we've come to know as a neoliberal turn in global political economy um, were embedded from the very origins of many of the processes um, of statecraft and state building. So it's really interesting. Um, and as someone who was giving a lecture that argued something very similar, but on the lines that neoliberal turn can be, when you br- pull together the history of welfare states and the history of sexuality and gender, you can see that, again, embedded from the very beginning with the, with the origins of this conflict from the, uh, the, uh, the way of including and excluding policy making. So, really rich lecture. I've got lots of exciting things coming up in my mind from it, but I'd like to open it up to questions, because I know there'll be a lot of people very interested in this topic. So, you can raise your hand. There's a function at the bottom of the screen, um, and, and there's also the chat function. But it'd be great if we could get a conversation going um, as well. Still taking everything in, Uh, Maxi.
2: Bear with me while I get sorted. Um, Amy, congratulations on really fantastic work. Um, I work on Latin America and uh, with an interest on in uh, development policy, let's say international development policy, and I thought you know, you're teasing out of the various lines of communication across borders, and particularly north-south, but also south-north, was really compelling and very interesting. It's a a wonderful piece of work, and as John just said, lots of food for thought. Um, I was um, wondering how you see um, the situation as we get, you know, past the sort of you know, the period when uh, so-called neoliberalism, you know, begins to lose its persuasive force and you see a kind of, you know, I'm not talking so much about the kind of period associated with the new protectionism, but the sort of sense of the exhaustion of the neoliberal paradigm and later followed by a sense of, you know, the, the fallout of globalization, both politically and economically, as it has been argued. I mean, how do you see um, the situation since then? I know that's a tough question because you're a historian and you've done a great job in in analyzing the period that you're most acquainted with. But I just wonder how you start to think about that uh, process change in the more recent periods. Thank you so much for that question. and,
1: you know, I'll offer sort of a, a few thoughts, but, um, you know, I think you're right that as a historian, I um, I might not be the best position to answer this question, but I am happy to discuss it. It's something I've, I've kind of been concerned with. Um, one of the sort of oddities, I think, of the politics, uh, you know, politics in Latin America now for several decades has been absolutely the kind of exhaustion and lack. I mean, I don't think that neoliberal prescriptions ever had democratic legitimacy, but um, the sort of, um you know widespread you know condemnation and, and and widespread sort of open recognition that they have no legitimacy, no no democratic popular legitimacy. It's that's been status quo for decades at this point. And yet um neoliberalism seems to have endless zombie lives. Um, and um there are you know right now of course in Colombia the protests that are taking place are you know you see this sort of enduring struggle against um, ongoing attempts at at neoliberal reform. And one of the things that I think gives neoliberalism or neoliberal prescriptions, their kind of staying power and their endurance is the fact that I don't think that they, I think that they have very deep roots. I think that there are many sources of these kinds of prescriptions. And that's one thing that I guess my research did convince me of. Um, uh, To the extent that sort of, also that sort of capitalist class power has never been substantially constrained. I mean, in a, in a country like Colombia, there are sort of different ways of, of thinking about its regulation and its promotion and so on. But one of the kind of driving dynamics of, of the story that I tell is one in which capitalists really are able to avail themselves of almost any um, configuration of the state. Um, and I think that that is another kind of, kind of enduring problem that we're living with today. That said, I do think that the um, the terms of conflict in Colombia are transformed in the moment when you see the kind of, um, you know, the, the economic opening, the sort of neoliberal reforms of the um, early 1990s. Because, of course, in, in Colombia, as you know, it's a process that's parallel to other um, neoliberal moments of neoliberal restructuring in Latin America, where there are sort of conflicting processes taking place of democratization and of um, neoliberal reform. And in Colombia, of course, that takes the form of the writing of of the 1991 constitution and the extension of new forms of recognition to emergent ethnic communities that are organizing themselves as such. And the sort of, both of those have had long-term consequences that we're seeing today, you know, in the contestation of neoliberal policies, as well as in their kind of, their zombie lives. Um, And I think the question today is, you know, um, how we still don't know what the resolution of that contradiction is going to be, um, but I think that, that is the the characteristic contradiction of this entire period, um, you know, since the since the 1990s um, in Colombia.
2: Thanks very much, Amy. I, I particularly uh, enjoyed reading your take on the 1991 Constitution in Colombia because it was a very clear example of the resignification of of and capture of kind of ideas coming from above by forces from below is very interesting. Thank you very much again. Thanks. And that moment is—it
1: continues to interest me. I actually had a little bit of research that I originally did for the book, but never never managed to make it into the book. That actually deals with um, the emergence of ethnic movements in the Cauca Valley. And I'm, I'm uh, given that we haven't been able to sort of travel and do new research, actually, I've been kind of revisiting some of that to work up an article on that subject because I I too felt I um, it was a, you know it's something I gestured toward in the last chapter of the book, but wanted to wanted to think about it a little
2: further. We look forward to reading it. Thanks.
3: Ricardo. Thank you, Amy. Um, as always, you know, very exciting, you know, um, arguments. I want to follow up on what uh, Maxi asked and, and ask you in terms of, you know, uh, it is very interesting to me to think about, you know, the social foundations of, you know, well, neoliberalism, if we can actually use that term, you know, now, given, given your work and but would you agree with me to say that you know as you know one of the reasons yeah uh, we see the the, the uh, how to put it you know that, that 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 is indeed you know a partial legitimacy as partial and as you know as weak as it is in terms of social foundations that is to say you know coming from below i think that's well at least that's my reading of your book that that's you're trying to invite us you know to think about that particular you know question so the social foundations of you know neoliberalism in, in a transnational sphere if you will is there as partial as it was so it's not just you know the capitalist you know classes but that there is also you know a level a degree of legitimacy that secure this particular political you know economy in place so it's just more, i you know, I'm just wondering, you know, thinking out loud and see if I'm actually, you know, misreading some of your arguments, Amy. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that your book provides great insight into that. I mean, one of the things that I thought about, you know, in reading your book was that, right, the sort of, um, I hadn't conceptualized the middle class Um, I found the concept so confusing. I struggled to deal with it. Um, I thought of it just as a self-identifier, but the way that you discuss um, sort of the significance of middle-class formation helped me kind of think back on my own material, I think. And so I think that your book does make a case for some kind of limited forms of um, social legitimacy, I guess, for these prescriptions. You know, and and I think that, you know, there are other books, too, that can help us think about this. You know, certainly in U.S. historiography, I think one of the big debates about neoliberalism, even kind of within the literature that basically takes it to be a prescription that comes from the right and has this kind of coup quality to it. One of the big debates there is the extent to which kind of imposition versus popular legitimacy um, is a kind of a core dynamic to the rise of neoliberalism. So we think of like Bethany Morton's book, for instance, as a book that very much argued that there were kind of social foundations to, to neoliberalism in the United States. So I do think that those dynamics exist. I think where my book might be a little bit different is in the following. Um, When I find popular organizations promoting practices like self-help housing, they are not um, advocating an order that I would identify as neoliberal. They're advocating a practice that is inherently one that kind of belongs to no order, that is incredibly promiscuous that can belong to many different orders. So among the advocates of self-help housing, um, you know, you you find people who really think that it's like a wedge to open up the welfare state and create a form of social democracy in the United States. You do find a few people who are just, you know, who really are like, foot soldiers of the new right. So there there are some of those people who are involved, but they're not the sort of main dynamic of what's going on there. So when I look at a program like Self-Help Housing, what I find are people who, everyone involved in this thinks they're they're like halfway to something, but almost nobody thinks they're halfway to Ronald Reagan, you know? (laughs) And so I think that there is a lot of popular buy-in to all sorts of things that come to Um, be elements of neoliberalism later on, but that's a little different from saying that there's a lot of popular support for the package of neoliberalism and the set of meanings that um, get conferred on those practices like after the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, It does raise questions that the book doesn't answer about um, how people adapt. Once those practices are really deeply embedded in a new order, I, you know, for instance, when I look at self-help housing, the organizations that were created in the 60s, many of them still exist um, today. And people working in them um, have all sorts of different political ideas. In some ways, they're, uh, some of them are the same people who started the organizations actually, or, or were involved for a long time and, and have some of the same kind of range of views. And some of them see themselves as kind of almost they snuck under the radar, they're still surviving, you know what I mean, they've managed to get some resources in a really hostile world. Um, and some also, you know, would say very candidly, if, if I asked, you know, um, you know, it's interesting that you guys have gotten support from every manner of government, and they'll say, yeah, that's one of the things about this program. Um, and so I think that, you know, um, those, those kinds of programs, I think, can still be incubators of forms of politics that can be um you know maybe provide glimpses of a different kind of order but they also can just be ways of coping and surviving and that form that you might characterize as maybe acquiescence to um to an order that maybe they didn't intend to be authors of and i might not say that they are exactly authors of but that you know you could read that as a form of kind of social legitimacy um i think that that's one way to read it
0: thank you amy I want to ask Amy about again, a little bit more about what you talked about with the conundrum in your epilogue about you can see how some of these actors who would self-style themselves, if not as neoliberals, certainly as people who were prophets of a changed economic order after the 1970s, you can see how they would want to drive a particular narrative and and build a particular view of the recent past that allows for that that sort of rupture moment, but I'm still intrigued about, and I'm still wondering about why have scholars, you know, why has there been this age of fracture, great exception by the narrative? I, I'm still a bit sort of confused about it. And I think one of the things I want to ask you about is, is, is it that they haven't focused, that this question of something like the welfare state, for instance, which is a term you used a lot in your lecture, but what is the welfare state in an America's context, US and more widely? It, 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 we need to be precise about what we're talking about. You know, Social security is not great society, anti-poverty program. Many people don't come under any kind of welfare state that we might conceptualize it in international terms in the United States or very little of it. Um, it, it it's very protean and US has always and again i think we can apply this more broadly and i know nestor's going to be asking the question soon and it works on the relationship between private business interests and governments in latin america these governments have always derogated responsibility and authority to private capital in a variety and range of interests right through 19th century through the 20s and now it's not so so i'm still a bit why the story you're telling seems so compelling to me, yet what, why isn't it kind of not new? you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'll try and answer that question maybe in a couple of parts. Um, one thing I try to do at the end of the book is um, think about the origins of the left-wing version of this critique of neoliberalism that, that echoes basically right-wing self-aggrandizing tales. And that, Attempt was informed by the fact that, I mean, this, the kind of story about, you know, um, the Chicago school, the Mont Pelerin Society, the, the whole kind of master narrative of, of, of the rise of neoliberalism. That was my own understanding of history when I arrived at graduate school. I was, I learned that story um, certainly not in school, but in the late 1990s, when I was a college student involved in the global justice movement and involved in labor activism in the United States and within the left, that was a story that, that was being sort of told and circulated and written in, in you know, popular form. Um, and in many ways, I think it was a story that was um, learned actually from you know activists and critics in Latin America who sort of, um, were denouncing, you know, the Pinochet dictatorship and so on, um, and that was a story that, for me at the time, had huge explanatory value. It provided me with a master narrative of the politics of my lifetime. It um, provided also a powerful critique of, you know, the um, the overall logic and meaning of of policies that we were struggling with. Um, And I think that one of the things that that story um, did is it helped to mobilize what I think have been extremely important movements that have had long, you know, sort of long-term consequences. And I think that that's one of the reasons that that story had staying power is that it had a certain kind of inspirational mobilizing quality. One of the things that it also did, you know, it took the right's own account of itself at face value. And what the right was doing, you know, what like Milton, you know, I didn't know at the time. It didn't occur to me that that story didn't start out as critique. It started out as like Milton Friedman's autobiography. (laughs) And one of the things that is just fascinating to me when you go and read those guys is, right, what do they think the welfare state is? I mean, they, they, you're exactly right. They are the ones who, for decades, had been kind of pillorying the welfare state as like something that was from my perspective, a million times better than it ever was <laughs> from their perspective, you know, the face of evil. Um, and I think that one of the kind of curious consequences of that, of the the way that the kind of social movements basically took the rights depiction of the welfare state in their mobilization is that that form of memory became highly inspirational actually, um, in a way that I don't think is like politically pernicious can actually be very politically valuable because what it meant was that people fought back on the welfare state and they were selecting out Some of its more progressive features, essentially, exactly as you say, you know, social security, um, you know, a number of, you know, they're remembering strong unions. They're remembering strong banking regulations. They're remembering um, some of the things that, you know, they're they're missing after the 1980s. They're not they're not like invoking the welfare state to say, like, we need more for profit educational contracting, even though that's born alongside, you know, Medicare. They're thinking about one set of practices that are the ones that the right tends to hate, the ones that capital abhors. And that I think proved quite um, useful to mobilization and what kind of the mobilization against this idea of neoliberalism and what the kind of neoliberal memory of the past did is allow people to essentially express what they valued um, in, in the past. Um, and the cost of that, which, you know, um, One may or may not think it's a significant cost, but you know the kind of unintended consequence of that is exactly the kind of evacuation of the past, the kind of obliteration of a lot of the other features of the welfare state, which is a very complicated entity. Um, So that's one reason that I think that that kind of memory um, grew up. Um, I think it had it had a certain political function that that it still has actually. It provides people with a kind of a a useful image of what a welfare state could be actually. Um, In terms of, um, uh, among historians, why this story is surprising, which is um, a somewhat different question from the kind of the popular understanding. um, I guess I would say two things. One is that to some extent, I think historians, it, it made sense to note that, you know, at one time, you know, it made sense to note that there were these protagonists who, um, uh, who had projects, you know, like the mock Tolerance Society and so on, they, they had their projects, and those were not without consequence at all. And it, it made sense for historians who I think were also influenced by social movements in ways that they didn't always acknowledge, it made sense to explore those, those processes. Um, But one of the things that I think happened in the kind of literature on neoliberalism that tried to discuss its origins is that it became a little bit divorced from what I see as most of the writing um, that came out of kind of social and political history and political economy on like the New Deal and the New Deal order. That literature was always attentive to the contradictions of the welfare state. It was always attentive to the contradictions of the New Deal. And I think that my research in some ways is consonant with some of the insights of that world, especially as it's developing now. So we see, for instance, um, really interesting books that, you know, gotten really well-deserved acclaim about the role, for, for instance, of private banks or of fast food chains in um availing themselves uh, and grafting their activities onto anti-poverty programs and mobilizations against racism in the United States in the 60s and 70s um that work is not coming out of like the literature on you know kind of what are the origins of neoliberalism it's coming out of this kind of longer tradition of trying to analyze urban development the nature of the new deal uh, the the way that the U.S. government as you say has always delegated power and so some of um what I think needs to happen is like an integration of the self-styled literature on the origins of neoliberalism, which has tended not to always take the insights of of, of this other literature with, I think, what is the kind of core of um, kind of domestic histories of social welfare, urban development, um, and state formation. So I hope that that's starting to happen.
0: Yeah, no, I think it is, and it's, it's really it's a really interesting conversation putting those those ideas in in dialogue and thinking backwards and forwards at the same time, I guess, as well. Mm. Uh, Nestor, did you have a question? I know we're we're coming towards the end, but I thought Nestor had it.
4: No, no, I'm okay. uh, Amy already answered my my question. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the talk. Very interesting.
0: Thanks. Did anyone else
4: have a question to ask? Uh, Josh? Let's see if the internet holds out. Yeah, thank you very, very much Amy. That was a really fantastic overview of your work and I think when we were first having this conversation about you coming to to do the um, lecture tonight, I was kind of um, you know, I was saying there's so much great stuff <laughs> that you're working on at the moment. And so my question is is kind of more about uh, your next projects and, and how this, uh, you know, big book project is kind of feeding into your next work because it seems like, sorry there's a plane flying overhead, um, it seems like uh, essentially you're kind of looking at this from the other side, right, you're kind of looking at contingent workers and how this develops transnationally and so I'm just kind of wondering to what extent is that now more of a bottom up than a top down story. And Are you kind of actively trying to do that, or have I am I kind of misreading uh, your future work that that may not even be underway yet? But I'm just quite um, excited to hear about really moving from this project onto an onto you, to your next uh, ones, and of course, debt in Indian country as well.
1: Thank, thank, you thank you so much. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I guess I can say autobiographically that you know when I went to graduate school, I thought I was going to study. Um, labor history and African-American history. And those are topics that are still meaningful to me. And I teach in, in those, you know, those are sort of, those run through my, all my teaching. Um, and I hope that anyone who reads the book can sort of see the, the kind of interest in social history that still runs through this book. But one of the things that happened to me in graduate school is that I realized that um, in some ways I had more questions at that time about capital than I did about labor. And so the book, you know, reflects that. I That's what I kind of didn't understand. I, in some ways was so persuaded by the new social history. I just, I loved a lot of the books that I read. And I, at that time, I didn't have a great question in kind of labor history. Um, to ask the kind of question that you really don't know the answer to that will sustain your interest for, you know, 10 years of your life. Um, And having finished this book, I, you know, I tried my best in this book, I understand social conflict to be the engine of historical transformation. And so I, you know, throughout this book, there are kind of there's social conflict running throughout, but nobody who reads this book would say, oh, this is a labor history. Absolutely not. And I, by the time I finished the book, I did have other questions actually that were kind of bringing me back to the kind of work that originally I thought I would do as a historian. So you're absolutely right. So I'm kind of working on two projects right now to the extent that the pandemic allows us to work on anything. Um, And one of them is, right, it's a project that's called Debt in Indian Country um, that's at a more preliminary stage. And essentially what this, is, is, well, I'm trying to write sort of a history of debt among Native Americans in the 20th century, which is a topic that we know very little about, actually surprisingly little about. Um, the way I came to it was that when I was doing that research on training and education programs, I was working in the Bureau of Indian Affairs papers, and anyone who works there will know that there are, mean, um, those papers are, are so little used. And there are, I came across basically boxes upon boxes of uh, materials that had never been screened or opened for research. And in there, I came across actually some records of local debt conflicts um, among um, Choctaw sharecroppers in Mississippi. And I thought, wow, you know, I have read. Tons about debt in the 20th century United States, and Native people are just not part of that story at all. And I started like reading around and I just realized that there was, I had so many questions. I mean, one of the kind of big issues here is, you know, a classic question about the economic function of imperialism. Um, We know a lot about the ways in which sort of debt was structured in the United States um, to produce, you know, racialized exploitation. With native people, I'm very interested to sort of think about what their economic function was in relation to the US financial system, in relation to the US government, through relations of, of, of debt and credit. Um, there are many questions that sort of ar- arise from this, but that's one of the things that I'm interested in. And it does very much involve you know, becoming immersed in a lot of very different local contexts um, and trying to understand, you know, how people, you know, to the extent to which people had access to money, how, you know, what the local relationships were, and then how to build those kind of local relationships up to sort of think about their function in relation to, you know, large scale economic institutions in the United States. So that's one of the things I'm interested in right now. And the other, which is a little further along, is a project um, that I'm calling The Disappearing Worker. And this is, it, it is about the restructuring of employment. It's how it comes to be that Um, nobody has a legally recognizable employment relationship anymore. And this was inspired actually by some material that I also stumbled across in in doing um, research for the first book, which suggested to me that in the mid-century third world, multinational corporations were incredibly aware of, on the one hand, the profits that could be made from investment in developing countries, but on the other hand, the political and legal and social liabilities of being invested and being the boss, specifically employing workers and owning plant and equipment in a place where, you know, you've got to confront um, labor movements, where there's social upheaval happening, where there's social revolution taking place. And so I, I saw all of these um, examples of kind of debates about how you can invest in these contexts without being the boss, without actually employing workers and how you might kind of start to restructure um, uh, your investment, how you might restructure your, your corporation in order to like wriggle out of that of that problem. And I'm interested because these are multinational corporations, I'm interested in how they're transposing lessons from one place to another, um, uh, taking lessons from the third world and and using them elsewhere. So part of the story is about capital, but a lot of it is about kind of local labor conflicts and um, and the transformation of work in different places. And within Latin America, some of the examples I'm looking at are, it's trying to kind of look with fresh eyes at some areas of Latin American labor history that are kind of, you know, classic cases of, you know, meatpacking in Argentina, some of the ex- exact, you know, factories that like Danny James wrote about um, are, are sites of these kinds of uh, restructuring by U.S. corporations that I'm researching now. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to do a little labor history after uh, a long time thinking about the boss.
4: Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Thank you. That's a really interesting answer. I'm looking forward to, to le- seeing how it all develops. Thanks.
0: Great. Thank you very much. And I think looking forward to the future in terms of research, I hope a positive one, um, brings us really neatly to the end of today's um, lecture. So I really want to thank Amy very much for a really stimulating and fascinating lecture um, that speaks very much to the interests of our whole department. So thank you very much. um, And hopefully see you in person soon.
2: Thank you very very much. Thanks, Amy. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.